Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Green Leads Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo, and I'm really excited to have you here today because we are talking about something that I see popping up a lot. We are talking about blood sugar and insulin and glycemic index. I have on a diabetes expert to talk about these things because I'm seeing a lot of athletes discuss things like their blood sugar during performance. I saw an article recently in Runner's World about an athlete who wore a continuous glucose monitor during her run to see how her blood sugar fluctuates. And then I've also seen other bodybuilders talk about insulin and their insulin response to food. So these are all things that we chatted about with our expert today, who is Erin Polinski-Wade. She is a registered dietitian and a diabetes expert. She is an expert in blood sugar. She's written diets, uh, she's written cookbooks like the two-day diabetes diet, and she has a private practice where she works with tons of people. She's also a media authority. She's been quoted in many articles and she's written many articles. She's on TV all the time. She is a true expert. She is so knowledgeable. So if you ever wanted to know more about blood sugar, insulin, glycemic index, everything that surrounds that and diabetes, we touch on that as well, this is the conversation for you. So let's jump into that and let's hear from Erin. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for joining me today. So much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this because I keep seeing this topic pop up a lot. We're going to talk a lot about blood sugar, insulin, continuous glucose monitoring, which may make people feel like this is too scientific, but we're going to break it down because I'm going to make you start with just the basics of defining what blood sugar is and what insulin is. Yeah, definitely, because it does not have to be complicated. So realistically, when we think about blood sugar, sugar is just the simplest form of energy and every cell in your body needs energy. And so that's what blood sugar is. It's energy for our cells, but it can't get into the cells by itself. It needs insulin, which is like the transporter. I like to think of insulin as like the taxi cab, right? It picks up the sugar, drives it to the cells and brings it into the cells to deposit the energy. That makes total sense. And there's a lot of, I think a lot of misconceptions out there about both blood sugar and insulin. And that's kind of what we're going to get into. So let's just jump into, I hear a lot of talk about blood sugar among athletes, especially because we're eating high carb diets and carbs come into play when we're talking about blood sugar. Some athletes are even starting to wear continuous glucose monitors. What exactly is a continuous glucose monitor? Sure. So when you think about it, it makes sense because athletes obviously want to know what's happening with energy and how to convert energy for the best performance. So when you think about how you test the level of energy or sugar in your bloodstream, we would test our glucose or our blood sugar. And typically that was always done with a finger prick. So you would have to take a, a little drop of blood, test it with a meter and see at one moment in time what your blood sugar is. Well, now there's technology called continuous glucose monitors that are wearable devices that you wear on your skin, and they can tell you 24 hours a day what your glucose is. So it's less invasive. You don't have to stop what you're doing and test your blood sugar. You can wear it all day long. And as an athlete, you can really look and see what your blood sugar is doing and how it's responding even during training without having to stop and take any measurements. 
That's really interesting. But this was something that was developed for diabetics, correct? Exactly. So the, the technology started for people with diabetes because they have to be checking their blood sugar. And you can imagine, you know, it's a chronic disease. You're checking your blood sugar for life and it gets exhausting. And especially when you think about people with type one diabetes who are at risk for low blood sugar, especially in the middle of the night, and they want to know how to balance their meals and based how many carbohydrates they can eat or how much insulin they need to give themselves. This technology is really life-changing for these individuals because it allows them to see at any moment in the day without stopping what they're doing and taking a finger prick, what their glucose is doing. And the best thing it does for all of us, uh, you know, from a clinician standpoint and for a person with diabetes is it gives us amazing data to see trends and we can really see what's happening throughout the day and throughout the week with a person and their glucose response. And that's why it's appealing to athletes too, because we can see how these trends might impact performance. But is it overkill for athletes to be doing this. I mean, not all of them are doing it, right? So some are, some aren't. And you kind of just said there are benefits, but do you think that, I mean, I guess it's not necessity. Uh, and yeah, I'm kind of going back to my original question. Like, is this overkill? Right. It's not a necessity. It absolutely isn't. However, I would say, you know, depending on the level of athlete, if you look at a professional athlete who's looking at every possible advantage, using something like a continuous glucose monitor gives them some unique insight because our glucose response is really individual. Every single one of us is a bit individual um, based on environment and lifestyle and our genetics on how we're going to respond to certain foods and performance. So it does give unique insight for the average person, for the novice athlete, it's not necessarily going to give you a huge edge, but when you're talking about a professional athlete or maybe somebody who is going through a period of time where they're having a really rough time taking it to the next level or breaking through a plateau, this could give some really great insight to help them take their performance to the next level. Yes, I read this article on Runner's World, which I sent to you, and I'll actually put it in the description below because I thought it was really interesting. This one writer who was also a dietitian, who's also a marathoner, said she used one of these continuous glucose monitors, which do people call them CGMs? Yes, they do. Yeah, it's okay. a little easier. <laughs> okay, so CGMs during her workout. And she kind of saw that what we recommend for people who are doing these long runs is that you have something that's like a very easy to digest carb. That's why we do like gels or sports drinks or something. And that essentially spikes your blood sugar. But then she said that she saw a crash right afterward and that that was, she felt that crash in her energy level. So she actually changed her feeling routine to include some protein and fat, which we don't usually recommend because it takes longer to digest. So it was interesting to kind of read that account and see how she found that worked for her. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I thought the article, uh, which was very interesting, and it goes to show how unique and individual all of us respond to our workouts and to how we fuel our body. Now, what I thought was interesting for anybody that's thinking, you know, maybe a CGM is overkill or, you know, not necessarily something they can invest in right now is that you mentioned she felt those crashes very much when we're working with athletes and we're talking about balancing blood sugar and fueling, you know, we're also trying to get people to be in tune with how do they feel? You know, how do they feel with the performance? Do they feel like they're hitting a wall? Do they feel dips in energy? So the data from the CGM kind of enforces when you see those glucose dips, it's giving you concrete data to verify why they're happening. But I do think you can still notice these shifts and fuel differently based on them, even without the monitor. Um, but it does 
you know, give a lot of insight to the fact that, yeah, we do have these, you know, recommendations for quick acting carbohydrates before exercise, but maybe depending on the level of exercise, the intensity and the duration that necessarily isn't always the right approach for everybody. And the protein and fat do lessen those spikes and give more sustainable, long lasting energy. And that might be a better strategy to test out and see if that's helping your performance as an individual. And again, it's not going to be right for everybody, but it does show that there is a way to do that and still improve performance. I also want to talk about the glycemic index, which is another thing that gets brought up to me a lot by athletes because, well, I'm going to let you define, I'm going to just make you define things this whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell people what that is before we talk about it more? Yeah. Yeah. So the glycemic index is basically, it's just a numbered ranking of foods. So what they're doing is they're looking at food and they're looking at how the food impacts blood sugar. And this is really for carbohydrate containing foods. So foods without any carbohydrate don't usually have a glycemic index ranking, but the number is comparing the glucose response of these individual foods compared to pure glucose or sugar. So they're ranked on a scale of zero, which is no impact all the way up to hundred and pure glucose is ranked at hundred. Cause that has the strongest impact on blood sugar or blood glucose levels. So when you look at a food's glycemic index ranking, if it has a a ranking of 70 or above, it's considered a high glycemic food. So it's going to have a high impact on blood sugar. If it's anywhere from 56 to 69, it's considered a medium glycemic index range and low is 55 or less. So when we're looking at that, we're saying, you know, low glycemic foods have less of an impact on blood sugar versus a high glycemic food we know is going to spike blood sugar levels. And this is also why you should ask a registered dietitian who specializes in diabetes about this kind of stuff, because I did not know those rankings. I just know, you know, some foods are higher on the glycemic index, but I didn't know exactly what is considered what. So people ask me these things in terms of things like potatoes, you know, they're Mm -hmm. high in the glycemic index. So should we stay away from them because they spike your blood sugar? Um, Is that something that people should be considering when they're choosing foods? Not necessarily. So the thing to think about with glycemic index is first, you have to look everything up in a database. And even with foods, like you mentioned, potato, the glycemic index actually changes based on if it's raw or cooked and how it's cooked. A mashed potato has a higher glycemic index than a baked potato. Like, so there's all these nuances that can impact the glycemic index. The other thing that really isn't taken into account at all with glycemic index is how much you're eating of the food. So To me, I don't give a lot of weight to glycemic index. If you do want to look at something like that, I suggest you look at what's called glycemic load and glycemic load. It's similar to glycemic index, but it's actually taking into account the amount of the food that you're consuming. So it's going to give a much more accurate representation of how that food is going to impact your glucose response. So it's a little bit of math. What happens to get the glycemic load is you take the grams of carbohydrate in the food you're about to eat. So let's say you were going to eat a potato and you were going to consume 15 grams of potato. You would multiply that by the glycemic index of potatoes and divide it by hundred. And that would give us our glycemic load. Basically, if it's under 10, it's a low glycemic load. So it's going to have very little impact on blood sugar. If it's under 20, it's still in the medium range. And then above that is going to be a high impact on blood sugar. It's interesting. And the reason that I thought to bring up the glycemic index was because when we were talking before about CGMs during exercise, I would think certain foods spike your blood sugar quicker mm-hmm. than other foods, right? So like how long does, if something is high on the glycemic index, 
is there a certain set period of time that that uh, stays in your blood sugar and then leads to a crash or is it different for every person? So it's going to be a little different for every person, but it's also going to be different based on a few things. So it's going to be diff uh, different on how much you eat because a small amount is going to have less impact on blood sugar than a larger portion. But the biggest thing is it's going to also be impacted by what you eat with it. So if you're eating, let's say you were having, you know, leftover Halloween candy, which is going to spike blood sugar pretty quick. If you were eating it with a meal that also contained protein and fat, it's going to have less impact on blood sugar because those other nutrients are going to slow down how quickly that sugar is absorbed and utilized in the body. So that's where it's not really this perfect science. And I don't like people to get too wrapped up in glycemic index because all these other things do matter. But generally, if you're just eating a pure carbohydrate based food by itself, the, the food, unless it's very high in fiber, it's going to be absorbed much within that 30 minute window. And it's going to still be digested up to an hour after, but you're going to start to see blood sugar rise pretty quickly after consuming it. So that gives you a little bit of a window if you're consuming it right before fueling for a workout. It's about a 30 to 60 minute window of time that you're going to see it have the biggest impact on your blood sugar. Okay, that makes sense. And then also for athletes who are eating these high sugar foods, and they're eating them pretty regularly because they're used for fueling. Does that do anything to their body over time? Do these spikes in blood glucose do any damage in the long term? So that's such a great question. Um, you know, generally for the healthy individual who does not have diabetes or high levels of insulin resistance, if we're eating a high carbohydrate, a simple sugar, your blood sugar will spike and crash within a healthy range for your body. So it's not going to excessive levels. Um, so therefore it's really not doing damage. However, long-term, if our diet is rich in added sugars and simple carbohydrates, long-term, if we're always spiking blood sugar, even though it's within that healthy range, we're also spiking insulin and insulin over time, the more it's spiked in our bloodstream, the more our cells are exposed to it, they become more insulin resistant. And that makes it harder to manage our blood sugar. Uh, insulin resistance is basically a precursor to developing type two diabetes. So for the athlete who's active and utilizing that energy, chances are it's not going to have a negative impact, but on days when they're not training, if they're eating in the same way, they're consuming the same amount of simple carbohydrates. And we're always seeing these rises and falls in blood sugar. They could be increasing their risk of insulin resistance down the road. Yeah. And I would also think that just having some sports drink for their workout or whatever, or having those sugary foods during competition is probably still less added sugar than a lot of people have in their standard diet. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because they're utilizing it with a purpose. You know, if they were just saying, I'm going to just drink sports drinks all day long as my beverage choice, even when I'm not training, that's a different story. But when there's a purpose that it's serving, I think it makes perfect sense to utilize it as an athlete for performance and just make sure like with anything that the diet is balanced, you know, these things all have a place in the diet, but you want to make sure too, as an athlete, that you're fueling your body with a good amount of clean protein and fruits and vegetables and whole grains during the day as well. Okay, so let's talk about insulin because you did bring it up and it's something that I hear so much about. I literally just saw, <laughs> this was kind of a hilarious thing. It was a bodybuilder on Instagram. I actually saw a doctor correcting a bodybuilder. So I'm not just <laughs> watching these random reels, but it was really interesting because this bodybuilder was saying that he, the anabolic window after his workout is within an hour because 
his insulin is spiked and he has more insulin sensitivity during this time. And I just feel like I'm hearing insulin sensitivity thrown around a lot. Is any of this true? Do we have to think about our insulin levels on a daily basis? Does it factor into working out and building muscle? If you work out and as you're exercising, your body does become a bit more sensitive to insulin just because as the nature of insulin is pushing sugar into the cells for energy. So during exercise and after your body is a little bit more sensitive to insulin. However, if you don't have a high level of insulin resistance, this really does not matter that much to you because your body is able to process insulin throughout the day for a person with diabetes or a person with pre-diabetes, this is beneficial because after exercise, they can tolerate carbohydrates a bit better without a spike in glucose levels. But for the average healthy person, doesn't really matter that much. Um, you know, and when you're talking about anabolic windows and I'm sure, you know, this too, it's the research is varying on if those really exist. Um, it is important after a workout to fuel your body, but how sensitive you are to insulin or not right after the workout is not going to have a huge role in how much muscle you build. It's really going to be the type of workout you're doing and the fact that you are refueling, but not so much the insulin levels that are playing a role there. Okay. So people who have more muscle don't have higher insulin sensitivity. That is a myth. Generally, yes. I mean, it's not going to be the muscle that's making the huge difference here. I mean, muscle tissue does require more energy. And so your body is going to utilize more sugar for it. But genetically, everybody's going to be a bit different when it comes to how they process insulin and then also lifestyle factors too. So you could have somebody who has a ton of muscle, but if they're partaking in lifestyle factors that are increasing their insulin resistance, they're still going to have a problem with insulin long-term. So I wouldn't just look at somebody and say they have a lot of muscle and say whether or not that's going to make them more insulin sensitive. I think people are getting so bogged down with these things like blood sugar and insulin. And if you're a generally healthy person and you're an athlete, are these things, and you don't have diabetes, you don't have pre-diabetes, are these things you even have to really think about much? Not really. No. I mean, I think it's, you know, break it down to basics, a well-balanced diet, making sure you're fueling and refueling around your workouts. And to me, the easiest thing you can do is just keep track. You don't have to keep detailed records, but if you know that you had a great performance day or your workout went really well, and you felt like you had great energy, look back and see what you did differently that day than a day that maybe you didn't feel that way. It could be hydration. It could be better sleep. It could be stress management. It could be diet, but you don't need a CGM. You don't need to know exactly what your insulin sensitivity level is in order to have an effective workout and perform your best. I think it's more just being in tune with your own body and seeing those trends over time that are, it's going to allow you to perform your best without having to get so scientific and tracking everything. I think that's the thing is that we're getting so, <laughs> like I said, we're getting bogged down with these things. And then there are interesting articles out there about how you could use CGMs and maybe it can help with your performance. And maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just like, if you're sitting down for a meal and eating a potato, you don't have to worry about it every single time. No, no. And I mean, really, if you want to think about it, if you stress too much, stress raises insulin resistance. So, you know, it's not benefiting you there either. Um, but I think for the vast majority of people, they can achieve optimal performance without having to get too fancy or too detailed. You know, these tools are out there, but I do not think they're a necessity for, for most of us. And if someone is worried about diabetes, say it runs in their family, what should they do? A lot of times the doctor checks their blood levels every year, correct? Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. So when you go to the doctor and you get your annual physical, so we should all, you know, no matter how healthy you are, everybody should get an annual physical a year and see what's going on in their body. Um, you're going to get a fasting blood sugar level, but that's just one moment in time. So if you do have a family history of diabetes, or you are worried, you can always ask your doctor for a different panel of blood work. Uh, one is a very beneficial blood work is called an A1C level. This basically looks on average what your blood sugar has been doing for the last three months. So it gives a little bit more insight into how well your body is managing blood sugar over the course of a longer period of time versus one moment in time. And that's something that with a strong family history of diabetes, you could look at that year after year. And if that number starts to creep up, then, you know, you might want to take action to prevent you becoming at risk for prediabetes or type two diabetes. But for the average person, if they're getting their annual physical and their fasting blood sugar is within normal range, generally they're, they're doing a great job and nothing to worry about too much, especially if they're already physically active too. Yeah. And I, exercise usually helps lower blood glucose, right? Or is it lowering? I know it helps with, if you are at risk for diabetes. Absolutely. So what exercise does is it helps your body utilize the sugar, right? So sugar's energy. So the more active you are, the better your body's going to utilize the energy. But the big thing that exercise does too, is it prevents our cells from becoming resistant to insulin. All of us, as we get older every year, our body can become slightly more insulin resistant. So if we're not taking steps to counteract that, that's why we see that one in every two adults over the age of 65 actually has prediabetes just because age-related insulin resistance. So if we're physically active and we're helping ourselves to stay more sensitive to insulin, that's going to reduce the risk of developing type two diabetes down the road. It's funny because every dietitian, a lot of people don't realize, but every dietitian has to go through classes called medical nutrition therapy, where they learn about different disease states, one of which being diabetes. And then we also do clinical rotations in hospitals. And I did that a while ago and I don't remember most of it. And I, that's why I'm like asking you these questions and I'm like, wait, is this right? And I think this is, I'm just going to stress again, that if you're worried about blood sugar and insulin, you should find a dietitian who specializes in this with their CDE credential. That's what a uh, certified diabetes educator, correct? Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, especially if it's in your family history, because diabetes, type two diabetes is preventable, you know, and it's something that the more information you have, and the more you know, your risk factors, the more you can take steps now to prevent a diagnosis later. So if you do have any worries, I think it's a great idea to just connect with a dietitian that specializes in it, ask questions, and it doesn't have to be an ongoing thing, you can just, you know, take home some action plans you can work on now to keep up with your prevention measures through life. Yes. And I should bring up, we haven't really touched on type one diabetes because that's a completely different thing that a lot of people have from a younger age. And that really doesn't pertain to what we're talking about. So it is type two diabetes. Exactly. Type one diabetes would be where the pancreas is just not producing insulin. So insulin has to be taken externally. And to be honest, I mean, that's where something like a CGM is amazing because these people with type one diabetes now can be high level athletes and have this data that's so beneficial to them. You know, that's really the purpose that it's serving. Um, and yeah, I mean, it can be accessible to other athletes as well, but that's really the population that it definitely benefits um, everybody else. It's just kind of a, a nice to know information. I have one other question for you, which may seem like it's out of left field, but what do you think of the ketogenic diet? Because obviously that's a low carb diet. Um, and I know that people are following it. Some of the reasons could be blood sugar. They don't want to spike their blood sugar since it's a term that's being thrown around a lot. What do you think about it? 
So the keto diet has been out there for a while and everybody feels like, you know, it's a quick fix and you drop weight and you can manage blood sugar. But you know, here's my thoughts on it. There are clients I've worked with who have followed the keto diet and they have success. But for most people, reducing carbohydrates to less than 10% of your total calories is not sustainable long-term. And if you want to have health benefits that last, you need to focus on changes that you know you can stick with, not you know, a week from now or a month from now, but we're talking like years from now. And when we look at the research on keto diets, the biggest problem with it is the sustainability. Most people just can't be compliant with something that vigorous that long. And there really is no need to, um, there's so many beneficial foods that do contain carbohydrates, like fruits and vegetables and beans and lentils that offer additional health benefits. So I would encourage you to explore other options. You can go with lower carb and incorporate more, you know, good for you carbs that are high in fiber, but I don't think keto is really where it's at when it comes to long-term health benefits. I would encourage people to not focus on taking away the carbs, but instead focus on eating more fiber. Um, 99% of people don't get enough fiber. And if we actually get more of that in our diet, we can achieve most of those health benefits and weight loss we want. Um, but you're focusing on eating more of something versus taking it away. So I think it's a lot easier to stick with. Yeah, and to bring it full circle, these are things that really maybe we shouldn't be getting bogged down in, in terms of, especially for athletes, you're probably not even eating enough carbs as it is. Don't worry about your blood sugar. Don't right. worry about your insulin. Maybe like, let's just focus on the basics of what we're doing. And these things could be handy to think about, not necessarily ketogenic diet, but maybe think about your blood sugar helps a little bit, but it's not something that you need to like focus on every day. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just focus on the big picture, right? Like, are you taking in a variety of nutrients? Are you eating before and after workout? You know, those are, the, are you hydrating? Like those are the biggest things that are going to give you immediate results and you don't have to get so into the weeds and be counting all these numbers and focusing on so much data. It gets overwhelming and it's hard to keep up with. Well, Erin, thank you so much. This was really helpful. And I really hope this sets the record straight for a lot of people. So I want them to be able to find more from you, follow you. Where can they find you? Yeah, sure. You can connect with me. My website is erinpolinski.com or you can head over to Instagram. I'm Erin Polinski Wade over there. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. And if you want to learn more from me, follow me on social media at Greenleats or visit my website at greenleats.com.